Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Adam. And this is Matt. And we are the hosts of American Moments. If you have an interest in American history or American pop culture, or really any moment in American history that, that changed how we function as a people in a country, you should come on and listen to our podcast. Everyone knows about the Boston Tea Party, Paul Revere, but did you know that there was a big insurrection in Colorado in the early 1900s? Did you know the history of the jungle and how it changed labor laws in America? Well, I do because I'm the host, That's right. but I think everyone else should listen too. How about how Nintendo affected an entire generation of Americans? Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of stuff that we dive into. We'd appreciate it if you found us on Google Play or iTunes. And thanks again for supporting the independent podcasters of the universe, such as Zach Twomley, and enjoy his show, When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks so much for listening, guys.
Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 28, London Stalling, which is a play on London Calling, and I have just ruined it because I have to explain it. In any case, last time we examined in greater detail the experiences of two case studies in particular, the Turks and the New Zealanders, in a bid to appreciate how the Korean War affected both countries and why both felt compelled in the end to intervene. As we learned, both Turkey and New Zealand saw the Korean War in the first place as a chance to prove their utility to the West. More specifically, to Washington, on the understanding that such utility would be returned with a strong alliance. For Turkey, this meant membership of NATO. For New Zealand, this meant inclusion into the long-desired ANZUS Alliance Pact in the Pacific. I really enjoyed covering those aspects of the Korean War, particularly since the mainstream version of the conflict rarely gives them much attention. The experiences of both countries we discovered were central to the overall story of why the West proceeded to get so involved. A case could be made that a great deal of states became involved in the Korean War on the understanding that it would improve relations with the Americans, as well as strengthen the United Nations, which many smaller or newer nations were dependent upon. In this episode, we examine the actions and rationale of a power that doesn't quite fit into this trend. When Britain decided to enter the Korean War through the use of its naval and air support units on the 27th of June, this was considered in London to be largely acceptable. And it was welcomed both by the majority of the Labour Party and by Winston Churchill in opposition. Yet the struggle which followed to wrest a commitment from Britain to contribute actual soldiers to the war, a process which only reached fruition a month later on the 26th of July, was a great deal less smooth and far more politically tumultuous. One must ask the pertinent question. If the Anglo-American alliance was secure in the post-war world of 1945, how was it that the British felt compelled to act in the Korean War for basically the same reasons that the other powers did? That is, for the benefit of their relationship with the Americans. The answer, as it happens, sheds light on the fact that the Anglo-American relationship wasn't as close in the post-war world after all, and that Britain and the United States held several differences in policy close to heart, particularly with regards to China, the freedom of command enjoyed by General MacArthur, and the resurgent threats of the use of an atomic bomb. In this first of two episodes looking at the Anglo-American relationship in the Korean War, we will do our best to address these issues, so without further ado, I will take you to a somewhat downcast scene, that of Britain, in 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by 1956. 1956 is our special Patreon series looking at a particular year in history. I'll give you a guess as to what that year is. Seriously, 1956 is a series that really serves as a kind of separate experience from the Korean War, but it is in many ways a sequel to the Korean War. Several of the same figures are still walking around within it, and if you enjoyed the Korean War and the experience it gives you and the window it gives you into these Cold War eras, then you will really enjoy 1956 too. 1956 is split up into two parts. The first part is looking at the Soviet Union, the removal of Stalin from the equation, and the resulting impact this had on Hungary and Poland and the Soviet Union in general, an era of destalinization, as it was called. The second part is something that I've been looking forward to doing for a really long time, and I finally got the opportunity to do it in that series. It's the Suez Crisis, and yes, it is absolutely fascinating. For 20 episodes, I talk about the East, the West, the Americans, 
the Egyptians, the British, the French, the Israelis, where they all went wrong, what they did right, what they thought they were getting themselves into, and what actually happened in the end. It's a fascinating story, guys, and from September 2018, 1956, we'll be looking at the Suez Crisis in detail, so be sure to join us either now or then, or perhaps in the future when you want to binge on some episodes. Either way, for a fiver a month, this series is yours. By supporting us on Patreon, you are saying that you want to invest your monies in When Diplomacy Fails, and that is super appreciated, because When Diplomacy Fails is pretty much my job, and I really appreciate any monies and any support that you feel like sending my way. This podcast will always be free, as long as I have anything to say about it, but any little monetary support that you want to give in return for extra content, if you didn't have enough already, will always be appreciated. Alright guys, without further ado, the song of the week this week is, well, what do you know, Bing Crosby has come back again. This time he is singing us a song called Can't Escape Your Love. It was released in 1936. Enjoy it guys, and we'll be back with episode 28 of The Korean I'm not the type that I seem to be Happy-go-lucky and gay I'm not content, but I dream to be Happy and lucky someday I'm free as a wandering breeze I'm free to wander any place I please And yet, I can't escape from you. Oh, I'm free as the birds in the trees. I'm free to sail those seven seas. And yet, I can't escape from you. I could ride away and hide away Where we were miles apart But when I got there I'd find you there Right in my heart And so you see That I'm really not free I'm so afraid you might escape from me And yet I can't escape from you. At 11 a.m. on the 27th of June, 1950, Clement Attlee's Labour cabinet met to discuss several issues, among them the question of support for the United Nations in Korea. What would the British provide, if anything, to the Korean crisis? Clement Attlee decreed, without any significant disagreement among his peers, that It was the clear duty of the United Kingdom government to do everything in their power, in concert with other members of the United Nations, to help the South Koreans to resist this aggression. This guarantee, interpreted as a commitment in the first place to send the support most convenient to London at the time, would come to haunt Attlee's government. The central difficulty facing Attlee's government in summer 1950, 
after having only been returned to government by the narrowest of margins a few months before, was the question of numbers. Fighting and winning the Second World War had proved to be an unsustainable cost for the British Empire. £7 billion, double the cost of the First World War and a quarter of the country's national wealth, had been the price paid for defeating Nazi Germany and her allies. But Britain didn't feel especially victorious in the aftermath of the war. Unlike the aftermath of the First World War, there was no big move to make new colonies or any real sense of the British Empire growing or getting any better. Although still recognised as one of the big three in world relations, everywhere one looked there seemed to be visible signs that the lion was retreating. For one, the late 1940s had provided several knocks to the old imperial senses. India was no longer under the traditional imperial red, and the jewel in the crown was seemingly lost forever. Tied instead to a loose agreement known as the Commonwealth of Nations. Yet Britain's ability to stomach the loss of its ruling history wouldn't have been so reduced had the situation at home not been presented to its people in varying shades of grey. Rationing, shortfalls in income and the legacy of a war that had come desperately close to home all proceeded to eat away at the perceptions of Britain as a world power. In 1946, Britain needed £1.1 billion a year to maintain its commitments to its people and across the world, but it could only bring in £400 million. The shortfall would have to be made up somewhere and Britain, like so many others in post-war Europe, turned to the world's biggest lender at the time, the Americans. A £3.75 billion loan on the 2% rate of interest was a hard sell for the post-war Labour cabinet, but in the end, despite much opposition, the tough pill was swallowed. After the difficult finance arrangements, a more selfless tone came to be adopted by Washington. Britain was offered a lifeline along with several other embattled nations, when in 1948 the first whiffs of the Marshall Plan were detected, and in the end as much as £12 billion in American monies was filtered into the post-war continent. The monies were lapped up desperately, and they played a key role in rebuilding the Western world. Martial aid also came in the form of finished goods, particularly military hardware, technology and weaponry, as well as agricultural goods and industrial products. Washington's goal had been to get Europe back on track, and while there had been some bumps, it did seem that Western Europe was clawing back some measure of prosperity by 1950. If you need a bit of a reminder as just to how grim things were, make sure to check out the Cold War Crash Course, which we released at the beginning of the year, in five parts just for you. Anyway, Britain by this point still seemed like the exception to the rule. Attlee's slim majority had likely been achieved because of his overtly pessimistic message to the electorate, one which appears eerily similar to those today that remember and still enjoy their government's declared intentions to pursue austerity in the face of recession. Britain needed to cut its cloth to suit its pocket, yet the old trappings of empire and the threats presented by the new Cold War situation necessitated the development of high defence expenditure at a time when Britain could least afford it. In 1948, British expenditure on defence dipped to £700 million, but it rose steadily after this year, likely in response to crises in Berlin, the Czech coup, and post-colonial and neo-colonial commitments, in the likes of Burma, for example, where the British had as much as 20,000 men stationed in this 
old Asian outpost in the name of fighting a colonial insurgency. Even before the Korean War had broken out, defence spending had been projected to rise further, from 780 million in 1949 to 50 to 1.1 billion in 1950 to 51. In a world where American B-29 bombers still resided in their British bases and where the Anglo-American alliance prepared doomsday scenarios in the event of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, it should come as little surprise to note that it was Washington that made up further shortfalls in Britain's defence budget. Yet even if Britain's balance sheet was creaky and even though its intelligence service was somewhat leaky, its relationship to the United States was mostly squeaky. I'm just kidding. I was just seeing if you were paying attention. Its relationship to the United States remained essential, and it was therefore highly valued. In spite of this value, though, British policymakers were not about to compromise their interests abroad in the name of American coin. This principle began to emerge above all in the very first discussion of the Korean War, and that aforementioned cabinet meeting on the 27th of June. The cabinet minutes of that meeting record the following observations. It had not been proved that in carrying out this aggression on South Korea, the North Koreans had been acting on instructions from Moscow, and it was suggested that there might have been advantage in seeking to isolate this incident and to deal with it as an act of aggression committed by the North Koreans on their own initiative. This would have enabled the Soviet government to withdraw, without any loss of prestige, any encouragement or support which they might have been giving to the North Koreans. The announcement which the US government was proposing to make by linking this up with communist threats in other parts of Asia would present a major challenge to the Soviet government. It would bring into controversy other issues which had not yet been brought before the Security Council and its reference to Taiwan might embarrass the UK government in their relations with the communist government of China and might even provoke that government to attack Hong Kong or to ferment disorder there. Within these minutes we find not merely a difference in foreign policy aims, but a difference in how Britain saw the world in comparison to its American ally. Note the unwillingness in London to push China into a corner, and the appreciation of how high-stakes diplomacy worked. By failing to acknowledge the Soviet involvement as explicitly as the Americans planned to do, the British believed they were offering something of an olive branch to Moscow in the event that the invasion went awry and Stalin wished to extricate himself from the operation. Yet, per Washington's less compromising diplomacy, the Soviets would have no room for extrication since it would be seen as their withdrawal, a very public withdrawal, from a challenge. The Chinese situation was just as bad. We've seen in the past how constrained the Americans were by their views towards the Chinese and how they viewed the loss of China as something akin to a communist conspiracy. There had to be a reason why Red China had prevailed. Certainly, Senator Joseph McCarthy thought so, and this reason could only be American collaboration and conspiracy with Mao's regime. Either that, or the Truman administration had been guilty of the most reprehensible neglect of the Chinese situation. There seemed to be no middle ground. Debate in London was far more balanced and realistic, though. There was no conspiracy or great criticism of the British inability to prevent a communist victory. But then, in Britain, there had not been the romanticism of Chiang Kai-shek's regime, nor had there been a tendency in Britain, as there had been in America, to view the Chinese as a power to be aided and somehow brought up to Western standards, as a big brother might help his younger sibling. Time magazine had featured Chiang Kai-shek on its cover, 
seven times, drawing repeated attention to the nationalist Republican Chinese and their struggle while ignoring the glaring problems of corruption and wastage that Chiang's regime endured. The British were far more realistic and less sensitive about the Chinese situation, and while the emergence of such a large communist power in Asia was hardly a net positive, Attlee's government was more than willing to engage in negotiations, and more critically to recognise the new People's Republic of China than the Americans had been. In my opinion, and in the opinion of many historians, this willingness to engage with and accept the realities of the world represented a fundamental difference between American and British attitudes to diplomacy in summer 1950. Indeed, Britain's connection to Hong Kong and its conception of the Americans in the world as new to world affairs and in need of a bit of education on how the world worked in certain spheres did arouse measures of tension between the two allies, particularly as the British remained wholly aware of the vulnerability of Western Europe to a Soviet march. With the Korean crisis flaring up, there was no question that Britain might do nothing but to send troops when the Korean War might only be a diversion or a signal of something far more threatening seemed to go against previous British strategic plans. Even with the cabinet's distaste at the rushing of the Americans to link the Soviets with the Korean War, the unofficial line adopted by the British Joint Chiefs of Staff was that the war was a conflict of Moscow's design. On the 5th of July, the Joint Chiefs met and affirmed their position that It may be assumed that the invasion of Korea is another example of the Soviet technique of a war by proxy, and we consider this action as a deliberate move in the Cold War on the part of the Russians. In the British style, though, knowing something and publicising it was not the same thing. A British Foreign Office memorandum had announced throughout its departments as early as the 26th of June that All possible actions should be taken to prevent the aggressors from attaining their object, both in order to safeguard the future of the United Nations organisation and to deter the Soviet Union from attempting aggression elsewhere, e.g. in Persia. London had few illusions about the capabilities of Pyongyang to launch such an invasion on its own power, and it welcomed any resolutions which would help to contain the crisis. The resolutions to support the South on the 25th and 27th of June were eagerly passed through the UN Security Council, but laying the blame at the feet of either Moscow or Beijing for its hand in the affair and the escalation of tensions between the West and China were seen as unnecessary acts. The arrival of the US 7th Fleet in the Taiwan Strait would certainly anger Mao, as indeed it did, and such actions would provoke the Chinese, making compromise in Korea more difficult. As June progressed, the British Foreign Office acquired a better understanding of events through its ambassador in Moscow, who cabled home on the 30th of June that Attack was certainly launched with Soviet knowledge and almost certainly at Soviet instigation. Attack began well, and Soviet government probably hoped for a walkover. Security Council acted with unexpected speed and prompt US reaction had not been foreseen. To judge from press presentation and comment, Soviet government, although happy to exploit evidence of US aggressiveness, is in no hurry to commit itself to North Korean cause. I think we can conclude that North Korean attack was intended to exploit a favourable local situation, not to provoke a general conflict. Military intervention by US was not expected, and Soviets either have no real policy to readily deal with new situation, or they have decided to sit on the fence until a military situation is clearer. I would judge that the Soviet government are extremely anxious not to find themselves engaged directly with the United States. 
Indeed, this British interpretation of events is presented by most narratives of the conflict as the correct version of the Korean War's course. However, if you believe my research and the research of several other folks, Stalin did in fact expect American intervention, and he was counting on it for his plan to alienate Mao Zedong from the West to succeed. That the Americans leapt willingly into this trap wasn't because they were oblivious, as the British supposed, but because the Truman administration accepted that their policy end goal of huge budget increases couldn't be achieved without the escalation of the conflict. In his compilation of essays examining the origins of the Korean War, the historian William Stuck noted that Secretary of State Dean Acheson saw an opportunity through strong action to consolidate the Western alliance and to unite Americans behind a major program of rearmament. The British formed an intrinsic, if initially unwilling, role in this plan, and nowhere is this clearer than in their increasingly aggravated responses to the conflict's escalation. What they just couldn't understand was that Washington was not carelessly blundering its way into the war. It was deliberately fanning the flames of the conflict's escalation for its own policy ends, and what was more, it wanted the British to join in with it. In time, the British would indeed join in this process of rearmament, thanks almost entirely to the challenge posed by the Korean War. By accepting that the Anglo-American alliance depended upon such displays of goodwill and support in the Korean theatre, Clement Attlee signalled to his peers in late July 1950 that in spite of the cost, Britain would join the Americans on the peninsula in the supplying of troops. We'll investigate the weeks which preceded this decision, of course, but the interesting thing to denote, for the sake of our thesis, is how Washington responded. Since it was known that the British couldn't afford the escalation in military contributions, the Americans would have to foot the bill, as part of Truman's general application to Congress for a larger defence budget. The historian Michael Hickey presents the image of Washington asking for the shopping lists from Britain and other involved powers so that the American defence budget could supply London with the military hardware that they needed. This image is a somewhat crude one, but it is what happened, pretty much. Under the terms of martial aid, after all, America could supply the free nations of the world, not merely with grants of money, but with goods in kind, and these included furnished military goods. In a sense, then, the commitment of the British signalled that Attlee's government was engaging in a moral intervention against the North Korean aggressor, and this posed a challenge to Congress, as Truman knew that it would. Now that their British ally had committed themselves to this struggle, America could not let her down and fail to furnish her with the items and support she needed. Since Britain had come to the aid of Korea and America, Washington must now agree to do the same. Supplementary increases to the British defence of 30 and then 70 million pounds were approved for 1950 and 51. Britain's defence budget would be inflated with the helium that America purchased, thanks to the Korean War. Now that we've seen the end goal and the end result of the weeks of pressure and negotiation between the two allies from late June to late July 1950, we should spend a while detailing the major obstacles Atlee's government faced when attempting to reach that goal. Two major problems faced Atlee's government above all. The first was the concern that this conflict and America's response to it would adversely affect Britain's relations with the Chinese and potentially endanger Hong Kong in the process. The second was the strategic concern that Korea 
marginal in the interests of Moscow and Washington alike, was merely a feint by Stalin designed to distract the West from his true intentions. The cable sent home by the British ambassador to the Soviet Union on the 30th of June, to the effect that Korea did not appear likely to represent a distraction, could only calm concerns to a certain degree, considering the old assumptions regarding Korea and the Soviet Union had evidently been so wrong, it stood to reason that British intel could be wrong about other aspects of the Soviet policy as well. If the threat posed by the Soviets was strategically formidable, then the economic and in some senses military threat posed by the People's Republic of China was equally disconcerting. Having recognised Mao's regime in January 1950, the British continued to negotiate with China on the basis of certain concessions in diplomatic and economic terms. Such concessions largely fitted with Mao's interpretation of his nation's position in the world. He believed, incorrectly as it turned out, that the PRC would be able to straddle a middle ground between a friendship with the Soviets and a mutually beneficial trade deal with the West. British hopes that by granting the People's Republic of China its full recognition, by allowing Beijing to replace Taiwan in the UN Security Council, and by considering Mao's diplomatic position, the ice between China and the West would be thawed, enabling the Chinese to become less belligerent in world affairs, and also hopefully enabling Mao to distance himself from Stalin. The American reaction to the Korean War, though, had pushed Mao further away from the West, and because the British would be guilty by association with the Americans, British policymakers would have to work that much harder to persuade the Chinese of where they stood in the equation. The decision in Washington on only the second day of the conflict to move a large fleet in the Taiwan Straits was viewed with consternation in London and as an unnecessary provocation of Mao. Yet, on the other hand, Britain's attitude towards Communist China was anathema to the Truman administration and to the State Department. The Red Scare agitation by Republicans and the Republican Chinese lobby inside and outside of Congress made it impossible for Truman to publicly contemplate any concession to or dialogue with Communist China. More insultingly in the British view, the not-too-distant past was dragged up by those same American statesmen who regarded British willingness to contemplate negotiations with Beijing as a reversion to the appeasement policies of the 1930s. Ouch. In view of American determination not to budge on this issue, Atlee's efforts to exert continued pressure on the United States to adopt a less rigid attitude towards communist China angered the Republicans and several figures in Truman's administration, while it also pushed the president further into a corner, so long as McCarthy's stinging attacks continued. The British insensitivity to Washington's policy dilemma then caused frequent friction between the two countries, even before the Korean War underlined such feelings still further. There was an evident disagreement over how to proceed in China for some time, where America presented defiance, Britain called it naivety, where Britain promoted realism, America called it appeasement. In the context of differing policies towards China, the Americans tried a different tactic, moral blackmail. Since the Truman administration needed British intervention to leverage its defence budget out of Congress, no effort could be spared in bringing the British on side, even if these efforts involved threatening to sever the very cords that bound the British and Americans together. 
When the American ambassador to London visited the passionately anti-communist British Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, on the 11th of July, the American noted that he had been told by Dean Acheson, Particularly, to emphasise Mr Acheson's view that the implications of your message and its possible consequences on the relationship between your country and mine might be very serious indeed. Bevan was taken completely aback and, after the ambassador had left, he communicated to Britain's ambassador in Moscow to get some balls rolling. In the past, the British ambassador in Moscow had managed to wrest a private confession from the Soviet foreign minister to the effect that the Soviets might be able to pressure the North Koreans to withdraw. Bevan was now willing to follow this lead, since it would ease the tensions on the peninsula and potentially solve the Korean problem before it ruined Britain's Asian policies. Unfortunately for Ernest Bevan, though, the Korean crisis was too far gone to be saved by diplomacy at this point. All this inquiry did was signal to Stalin that all was not well in the Anglo-American paradise. With no ability to slow down the pace of events, the British commitment of their Far East fleet in late June soon appeared insufficient. In communication with the other Commonwealth nations, the consensus seemed to be that Britain and its Commonwealth allies had done enough and that they were more than occupied enough elsewhere. Yet, as the timetable of war reveals, July was a shattering month for American morale and for the strategic position of its troops on the peninsula. A succession of battering campaigns by the North Korean People's Army following the first encounter between America's Task Force Smith and North Korean soldiers on the 5th of July saw the Americans retreat steadily south down to the Pusan perimeter. All the while the American soldiers wondered where the proposed reinforcements had gone. We knew we weren't doing very well. A Major Floyd Martin, one of the survivors of Task Force Smith, wrote, But we kept saying to ourselves, Well, we are here, and we've been here a whole month. Where the hell is the rest of the US Army? It was a valid question, but Major Martin, like so many of his peers, was not privileged enough to access the answer. The plea launched by the UN Secretary-General on the 15th of July for more aid to be sent to the beleaguered peninsula didn't result in an overnight commitment from either the British or their Commonwealth allies, as we saw from New Zealand's behaviour last time. The real change occurred when Attlee began to properly talk to Truman, and when the British ambassador in Washington, Sir Oliver Franks, was informed of just how seriously the Americans would take Britain's absence. The veiled warning received by New Zealand's government in the last episode that the Americans were now regarding this incident, the Korean War, as a means of separating the sheep from the goats and of distinguishing those countries who can be relied upon from those who could not, rang true for the British as much as for their Commonwealth allies. In line with this, the historian Ian McGibbon noted, The British, advised by their ambassador at Washington that a failure to respond positively would lead to a deep and prolonged reaction in the US administration and would seriously impair long-term Anglo-American relationships, decided on the 25th of July to bring a spontaneous offer of troops. A self-contained brigade group supporting armoured and artillery units was to be ready for deployment in three months. Ultimately, the concern over the damage that non-intervention would inflict upon the Anglo-American relationship proved to be the strongest argument in favour of keen British action. 
It was imperative that Washington remained committed to the defence of Western Europe, and for such commitments to be maintained, Attlee's government came to accept, however reluctantly, that concessions in Korea would have to be made. By and large, British public opinion supported British intervention in Korea, even if the British people, not to mention the soldiery, didn't understand what all the fuss was about. In accordance with the terms of your reserve liability, it has become necessary to recall you to active military duty. You are accordingly required to report to duty on 9th of August to... It was this wholly unwelcome summons that greeted thousands of reservists once the British government had decided to intervene in Korea with proper force. As a clinical note passed through a letterbox, the message was as unsympathetic as it was random, with some wholly unsuitable former soldiers being called back to the colours throughout the chaotic process. Since the British needed to essentially produce a new division for Korea, the lists of former soldiers, mothballed vehicles and World War II era equipment were hurriedly drawn up in the last week of July. All the while, the British Chiefs of Staff remained deeply concerned at the security of the Pusan perimeter, which General Walker's battered American and Korean soldiers had withdrawn into. Ali's government foresaw terrible costs in expenditure at a time when rationing was still in place in the country. Indeed, the question of financing the Korean War would not really compel some ministers to resign in disgust. They would actually topple Atlee's government in October 1951. After the initial push, Atlee's government proved unwilling and unable to balance the searing domestic austerity at home on the one hand, with the massive bills being run up for the Korean venture abroad on the other. It didn't seem to gel with Labour's apparent manifesto to rule for the people, when the people were starving and reluctant reservists were being sent off to fight a distant war. American accusations of appeasement levelled at Attlee's administration may have temporarily put steel into Attlee and brought about some mood of defiance in London, but such a mood was unsustainable in the long term. The British Chiefs of Staff dreaded the idea of pouring money into the bottomless pit of Korea when so many other strategic threats to the British position existed and so little stood to be gained from the participation in the war. Whatever their feelings towards the American pressure campaign, and however the war would affect Britain's domestic politics, from late July 1950, Britain had committed itself to take part alongside its Commonwealth allies in land operations on the Korean War. Whether it could be called stalling, acting in the name of national interest or defiance in the face of veiled American threats, the fact was that Britain was rearming. Much like the July crisis of 36 years before, the British emerged from this waited month in 1950, committed to a struggle. This time, though, the struggle was to be in a distant land, thousands of miles away on the beleaguered peninsula, which had never before drawn so much attention from the Western world. A new phase of the conflict was beginning, as General Walker's forces established themselves behind the Pusan perimeter and awaited the arrival of their enemy. Next time, we'll see how the circumstances of the Korean War threw up fresh challenges and concerns for the British to face, as the Anglo-American relationship thrust itself into the depths of conflict, just as Washington had always wanted. Until then though, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 28. Thanks for listening history friends, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.